0: Here in Isaiah chapter 7, when we come to especially verse 14, why don't you look over that. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we have this promise. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It is really important to understand what was going on when this prophecy was given. That's called context. You hear the word context, and we think about the other things that were said around that, the, what's called literary, the literature, the literary context, and that's absolutely true. You need to grasp what's being said there. That's why we're looking at all of chapter 7 today. To understand that, we also need to understand what was going on at this time in history with these people. This month we'll be looking at other passages, Obadiah, Micah, and Zephaniah. Maybe you've never even heard of some of those books. Maybe you've never read them. I'd encourage you to read Obadiah for next Sunday's message. One chapter, real easy read. What's going on there? But this is important. We need to know the historical and literary context of these prophecies to correctly understand them and to correctly apply them. And so because of that, I'll be given the entire afternoon service today to looking at a key aspect of that. And I'll touch on that in a little bit as we work through that. We think at Christmas, what do you think of? I'll tell you what I think of. I think of tinsel. And that just is like, Fingernails on a chalkboard to my wife's decorating capabilities. Now, if you like tinsel, great. I grew up with tinsel. The big kind of bulbs that are colored, that's the Christmas tree my mom had. Uh, I had an up-close-and-personal experience with that because I was doing something near the tree, and the whole thing fell down on me as a little boy. I had tinsel all over me. So take it off and put it back on. We think of Christmas... We think of joy, you know, and good times, and, of course, the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. Well, hopefully it's reverse, isn't it? Hopefully we're thinking of Jesus, born to the Virgin Mary. And because of that, we do have joy. We do have these blessed times. And we think of the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary, we go to those gospel passages. Particularly Matthew. Because it says in Matthew 1, verses 22 to 23, when the Lord was speaking to Joseph, he says, he quotes that the angel Gabriel, says to Joseph, um, this is happening exactly as God prophesied it would. A virgin will conceive, bear a child, uh, his name will be Emmanuel, shall call his name Jesus. So, that's why we need to be here in Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. What did the prophet Isaiah say about that? Why did he say these things? What was going on? What was going on when the Lord gave this prophecy through Isaiah? Verses 1 and 2, let's begin. So we consider the dark time that was existing then among the Lord's people. It came to pass... In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham. I'm going to stop there. The son of Uzziah, king of Judah. We see first, number one, Ahaz and Judah's wickedness. Ahaz and Judah's wickedness. And you might read this and you say, "Uh, I'm not seeing anything wicked here, pastor. What's going on? That's why I'm saying, what's the context? (laughs) What was going on in the history? And we gain that, from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. We'll look for that in a minute. But since the southern kingdom divided from the northern kingdom, so the northern kingdom of Israel was those 10 tribes, often, going a little rabbit trail, uh, those 10 northern tribes are called Israel and the southern is called Judah. Sometimes they'll go by their capitals, Samaria, Jerusalem, and that's helpful to know because when you're in those 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles parts, and it talks about Israel, you're thinking all of Israel, aren't you? You've got to understand what was going on right then. Since that division uh, between the northern, kingdom, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, all the northern kingdom kings were wicked. Every one of them was an idolater. They are all apostate. The southern kings of Judah. They had some good ones, and they had some bad ones. They kind of bounced back and forth. Can you imagine that? Having the head of your country, one being good, the other being bad, good, bad. Can you imagine? Aren't you glad we don't have that here in the United States of America? Well, we do, don't we? It's kind of human nature. Well, under Ahaz's dad, Ahaz's dad was a guy by the name of Jotham, Jotham was a pretty good king. But 2 Chronicles 27.2 says that the people acted corruptly. A good king, but the people acted corruptly. And it details that specifically in 2 Kings 15, verse 35. They were worshiping on high places, like the pagans. Israel wasn't supposed to worship wherever they wanted to and bring their sacrifices. They were to bring those sacrifices only to the temple in Jerusalem. But pagans and idolaters, they like to go up higher. It brings them higher to God, nearer to God. And so Solomon, he started doing this too. And I'm sure it existed before him, where they would. Worship the one true God on the high places. There's a lesson there about adopting the world's way of worship, isn't there? God made it very clear here. We get to Ahaz, Jotham's son. Ahaz here in Isaiah 7 verse 1. Ahaz was a bad king. He was a wicked king. What do you get when you combine a wicked people with a wicked ruler? Hold your place here and let's go to 2 Chronicles 28. So back in your your Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 28. And this gives the historical context and background. This is what was going on with Isaiah 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 28. What were times like? How does this help us see how Ahaz and Judah were devoted to wickedness? 2 Chronicles 28, I'll read a couple passages here. Let's look first verses 1 to 4. 2 Chronicles 28, verses 1 through 4. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. In what way? How did he disobey God? Verse two, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now remember, when we're reading Israel here, it's not talking about all Israel It's referring to whom? The Northern Kingdom. That was idolatrous. And so when it says he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, he is an idolater. Ahaz was an idolater. He made molded images for the Baals. Verse 3. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And look at this. He burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Not merely human sacrifice, but his own children. As burnt sacrifices. To these idols, in Jerusalem, the city of God. In verse 4, he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high hills, on the hills, and ever under every green tree. Drive down to verse 19. What else were they like? We read here in verse 19, The Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged Moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. As Judah's king, he was responsible for every aspect of Judah's life. He was to encourage obedience to the Lord and godliness, but he did the opposite. And then one last, drive down to verse 22 to 25. 22 to 25. Now, in the time of his distress, and this is after Isaiah 7, by the way, in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. Boy, the chronicler makes no, uh, no doubt about the, the wickedness of this guy. Verse 23, for he sacrificed to the God of Damascus, which had defeated him, because, uh, saying because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods, and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. Ahaz and Judah were terribly wicked. Let's go back now to Isaiah chapter 7. We pick up in verse 1. came to pass in the days of Ahaz son of Jotham son of Uzziah king of Judah that Rezin king of Syria and Pekah the son of Remaliah king of Israel went up to Jerusalem to make war against it but could not prevail against it and it was told to the house of David saying serious forces are deployed in Ephraim that's another name for Israel so his heart Ahaz's heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind we read number two here of Ahaz and Judah's worry. Ahaz and Judah's worry. Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel were pagan, idolatrous, ruthless, and wicked. We get something of their plots that they planned in verse six. They said this in verse six, let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in, it, in its walls for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tebel. This would be a puppet king. So we're gonna go, we're gonna do away with their defenses, cut a hole in their wall. We're gonna get rid of the kings of Judah, Ahaz. We're gonna install our own king. And that had a great effect, verse two. He has his heart and the heart of all the people. It wasn't solid, was it? They weren't standing firm in the Lord. It was waving to and fro like trees in the wind. The Lord's merciful message, secondly, in verses 3 through 9. We read of Isaiah's son that's mentioned here in verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz, you and shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Why did they go there? Well, King Ahaz knows who's about to attack from the north. Syria and Israel. Siege warfare was a common way and so of attacking. And so, They would surround the the city, cut everything off. Boy, can you imagine getting cut off from Walmart? Not having access to those daily things. And one of those things that's essential is, well, what do we read about here in verse uh, 3? Water. They had this aqueduct coming in. And so uh, Ahaz is right there. He's checking it out. Are we going to still be, he's preparing for war. Are we going to be able to have access to water uh, during this time, this attack that's coming? Isaiah brings his son, because God commanded him, Shear Jashob. That means a remnant shall return. That's what that name means, a remnant shall return. This communicates a message. Not all Judah would be destroyed by this attacking alliance. They would have an effect on him. You can read about that in 2 Kings. But not all Judah would be attacked or would be destroyed by this attacking alliance. A remnant shall return. We then read of the Lord's message in verses 7 through 9. Verse 4 The Lord said through Isaiah to him, Take heed and be quiet, do not fear or be faint hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of resin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. He's essentially saying this number one, stop worrying about nothing. Stop worrying about nothing. Take heed, be quiet, don't fear or be faint hearted. Because of, and that's the idea of this phrase, because of these two stubs of smoking firebrands, resin. And Pika will not succeed. They will soon be dead. They're just smoldering stubs of firewood. They're not going to burn everything up. They might have a lot of blather. They might try to make it look like they're going to just burn everything down. But they will not. A little smoke, but nothing else. No destructive fire will happen. God says to Ahaz, stop worrying about nothing. Verses 5 to 8, number 2, let me give you this and then we'll read it. Number 2, your enemies will be destroyed. Your enemies will be destroyed. Verse 5. Why shouldn't they worry? He tells us in verses 5 to 8 because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its walls for ourselves, set a king over them, the son of Tebel. And so the Lord says, this is what I'm going to do. It, in other words, the attack, this proposed attack shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years... Ephraim, the northern kingdom, Israel, will be broken so that it will not be a people. God says this planned attack won't happen. In fact, in 65 years, these nations will be completely shattered. <coughs> now, if you hate history, one of the things that you hate about history is dates, don't you? If you're in school, I said, if you hate history, if you love history, then dates are a joy to you, okay? I saw somebody nodding their head. So dates are important, no, because I think some of you like to enjoy, uh, uh, celebrate your birthday. The older you get, the more your attitude towards your birthday is, meh. But when you're young, when you have very few birthdays, you really enjoy those birthdays. And so you make sure everyone knows when your birthday is. The date that this prophecy was given was 734 BC. It was 734 BC. God said, in 734, 65 years from now, these nations will be broken. It will not be a people. So we all want to respond to the Paul Harvey question. What's the rest of the story? You know, how did this work and happen? Happen. Well, 12 years later, 12 years later, 734, I'm sorry, 722. And remember, you're going BC, so the numbers go backwards up to zero, okay? Assyria conquered Israel, and many of them were departed, were deported. Many of them departed, too. <laughs> many of them were deported. They were taken out of Israel and taken to Assyria and other places. If you want to write down the passages, 2 Kings 17, Verse 24. But that was 12 years. God said 65 years. In 669. 65 years after this prophecy. Assyria did one something it did with every one of the places it conquered. Not only would it take away captives. But it would bring people in from other nations into that land. Foreigners, And what would that do to the culture, the beliefs, the practices of those people? It would dilute it. It would destroy it. It would break them. They wouldn't be united. It would shatter the nation. God's point here is these are mere humans. They will soon die and become dust. Number three. Beginning of verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. Idolaters, number three, idolaters and apostates are nothing. They are nothing. He focuses here on the northern kingdom. And what's interesting here is he gives, I think, kind of a diss towards Pekah. He doesn't name him. How does he refer to him? Well, the country he's in, the basic province, the the capital, and who his dad was. He doesn't name him. He's kind of dissing him right here. The Lord doesn't even name him. He is nothing. And so, number four, if you will not believe, end of verse 9, surely you shall not be established. That is a great statement there. Underline it. Grasp it. He's saying here, number four, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Ahab's, believe my promise. Even though you won't be alive to see it, because it's 65 years in the future. Believe my promise. If you believe, what's he say? You will be established. Okay, he says, if you don't believe, you won't be established. But what's the opposite of that? If you do believe, you will be established. Two passages uh, that I'll give you that use the same word for establish. First, 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. The Lord says to David, your house and your kingdom will be established forever. And your throne shall be established forever. And here... God, through Isaiah, says to Ahaz, who is a descendant of David, if you don't believe, you won't be established. A second passage from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3. Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. A sure covenant Mercies of David. God says, if you don't believe, you will be shattered. The exact opposite of being established. Ahaz, at this point, probably thought, we can gather this from the next few verses, getting to the number 3.3. Ahaz probably thought, at this point, all right, yeah, sure, Isaiah, now leave me alone. I've got these attacking forces coming. I need to get things ready. You are crazy. You are nuts to think that these superpower superpowers are just gonna vanish away. That they're just gonna no longer be there. Isaiah, you need to live in the real world. Isaiah, you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. So, in this dark time, the Lord followed up with a merciful message and a gracious offer. Number three, the Lord's amazing offer of help. Verse 10 and 11. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. He basically gives Isaiah here, number one, a signed blank check. A signed blank check. The Lord invited Ahaz, ask for any miracle that will help you see that nothing is too hard for me. I will do what I promised. What would you do if somebody that you knew had the money gave you a signed check, made out in your name, but the amount was blank and said, Here, you fill out the amount. Notice the qualification. Somebody that you know has the money. If I give you a signed blank check, what are you going to ask? Why are you laughing? <laughs> you know there's a limited amount of funds in there. If Jeff Bezos, or I forget the guy that uh, runs Tesla, uh, if one of these guys says, Here's a signed blank check, fill in the amount. You know, it's not unlimited money because even they have a limited amount of money, but they have billions of dollars. This is what God does here for Isaiah and for Ahaz. It's a merciful thing. Miracles attested, they were a visible confirmation that what God said was true. Maybe let's put it another way God gave truth. And what a miracle would do, would underline it. What do you want to do when you want to un- emphasize something? You wrote it down and you're going to underline it. That's what miracles basically did. And note, it did not give more truth. It didn't give more information. It added formatting. Formatting it underlined it so that you couldn't miss the importance of this and that I mean what I say. So when God says, in the height or the depth above, the most seemingly impossible thing, as high as you can go or as low as you anything in between, I can do it. And I will do it. I will do this. So why did God say this? I will do this to prove that Syria... In Israel, that their days are numbered. Remember how many years? 65 years. That's why God is saying this. I'm going to underline that time. 65. I'm underlining, making it very clear. Nothing is too hard for me. Sadly, we read in verse 12 Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. This is number two Ahaz's unbelief. Is unbelief Sounds really spiritual, doesn't he? But the guy was an apostate. He was an idolater. He didn't care about the Lord. He refused to ask for that sign. He didn't believe what was told. He wouldn't believe it. Ahaz is essentially saying, stop wasting my time. Beat it. I've got to make sure we're ready for this attack. And so Ahaz goes back to checking his water supply. How does the Lord respond? That's the rest of the passage from chapter 13 to verse 25. The Lord's response to unbelief first is a rebuke in verse 13. Hear now, O house of David. And so he's speaking to Ahaz. That's the title. You are a Davidic king. You're from David, a house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But you weary my God also. You are responding to God as if he's a mere man. And he was not a mere man, was he? He showed no reverence, no faith, no trust. Then verses 14 to 17. Number two, the Lord will dissolve. The Lord will dissolve the threat of Syria and Israel. Verse 14 to 17. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you, and your people and your father's house, days that have not come, since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. God's sign, verse 14 to 16, is that, and this is to be emphasized because it's emphasized in the Hebrew, and I'd encourage in your Bible emphasize it, not merely a virgin, but what? The virgin. Underline that, the. The virgin would conceive. The virgin would give birth. The virgin would conceive, give birth to a son named Emmanuel. And then, an important thing to grasp, verse 16 as well. Then it says, For before the child, underline that word before. Before he was weaned and toddling about, so about two or three years old, Syria and Samaria would be forsaken. The promised miracle was given To make a point about time. The attacking kings would soon come to nothing. That goes back to verse 8. They would soon come to nothing. Less time that it would take for a boy to understand right from wrong. Think of some little ones that have been born to uh, children of our church here. We've had a lot the last few years, even just this year. I think we have, oh, we have Esther and Anna, any of our kids, okay. Megan. That's a sad when I can't remember my own grandkids, right? Um, maybe you all have had some grandkids born. Are, are they able to, to know the difference between right and wrong yet? Nope. How long does that take? About two to three years, some less than others, okay? That's the point of the sign here. And the length of time it takes a boy to be weaned and learn right from wrong. And that length of time, the Lord's promise would be fulfilled. It wasn't the virgin conceiving, the virgin birthing, and the virgin naming the baby boy. It's this and less time than it takes for a newborn baby to be weaned and start seeing what's right from wrong, Syria, 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 and Israel will be gone. This is not one prophecy having a bunch of different fulfillments. It is one prophecy fulfilled Matthew 1, to 23, when the virgin conceived, the virgin gave birth, Named that that baby boy, the son. This is one prophecy with, this is important, an aspect of that one prophecy applied to this instance and circumstance. The immediate situation of Syria and Israel being attacking Judah. Now, this opens up some questions that you might have. And that's why you need to stay for the afternoon service because I'm going to walk through the nitty-gritty there then, okay? The point here is this. What the Lord said about Judah's enemies will happen. What the Lord said about Judah's enemies will happen. He will dissolve this threat in a matter of years. Number three, the Lord will discipline Judah's unbelief. The Lord will discipline Judas' unbelief. Ahaz, uh, instead of looking to the Lord, he called on Assyria to help out, but it didn't work out as he had thought. You can read the parallel passages in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles to find that out. And as a result, they got attacked not only by Assyria, but by Egypt. Verses 18 and 19. Verse 18. It shall come to pass in that day, that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt. So these Egyptian forces would come up against Israel like flies. Y'all love flies, don't you? That's one of the great things about winter. Not many flies buzzing about. These flies would come up numerous (coughs) and irritating and biting. And that's to Judah's south. What about the north? That's the rest of what we read there. The bee, that's in the land of Assyria. They, Egypt and Assyria, they will come, verse 19, all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and the clefts of the rock and all thorns and all pastures. These Assyrian forces would come like bees, swarming and vicious. And it would have terrible effect on Judah, verses 20 to 25, we can basically summarize two effects here that I put here, I think, in your, in your outline. Disgraced and destitute. Verse 20, we see the disgrace that they will experience because of Assyria. In the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor. So the hired razor is referring to Assyria. With those from beyond the king, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs... And we'll also remove the beard. Now, as I look out on our men, let's see here, do a quick calculation. Two, two, three, three, four, five. Ooh, we're about evenly divided. Men who have beards and men who don't have beards. In Israel, how important was a beard? All the guys have beards. If you're a man... You have a beard. And the bearded men of our congregation say, Amen. (laughs) Makes me want to grow a beard. To have your beard shaved off, this happened in in David's time, to have your beard shaved off, your hair shaved off, it was a disgraceful thing to be done to you. It was a humiliating thing to be done. But not only that, the hair of their legs would be shaved off as well. Terribly disgraced. Verses 21 to 25 tells us about how destitute they would become. How destitute would they become? Well, verse 21. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow. How many is that? One. And how many sheep? Two sheep. And so it shall be from the abundance of milk that they give that he will eat curds. How is this a sign of Destitution. That one cow and that two sheep, that's all he's able to keep alive. This cow and those sheep have no young to keep alive. No young to nurse. And so this one man, all he will have to live on is the milk that he can get from his leftover stock. We also read at the end of verse 22, curds and honey, everyone will eat who's left in the land. There's going to not only be milk, but there'll be honey. Why? The fields will be desolate, no longer plowed, but filled with growing wildflowers that bees go through and swarm and bring lots of honey. Verses 23 to 25, we read about how the vineyards and the farms would not be cultivated, but only briars and thorns would grow. It shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows, men will come there because the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with a hole, You shall not go there for fear of briars and thorns. All will be good for, as it says, is a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. It's only good for grazing animals. You would think that Ahaz would come to his senses. God made a great promise of deliverance. And God is saying, this is what's going to happen because of your unbelief. Ahaz, wake up, get with it. But he didn't. 2 Kings 16 tells us he continued his unbelief. He sought help from Assyria. And we read this in 2 Chronicles 28. He copied the, the, the idolatry of Damascus and Syria, brought it into Judah. This chapter, chapter 7, it is just the beginning of Judas, or is just the beginning of Isaiah's. Message to Judah. It goes all the way to chapter 12 before a new theme is picked up. Here in chapter 7, it's, it's Isaiah and Ahaz. You get to chapter 8, there's a little switch of time, but the message continues to Judah. I will severely judge you, God says in chapter 8, verses 6 through 10. Judah, stop listening to ungodly influences. So chapter 8, verse 19. Chapter 8, verse 19. When they, when the people say to you, Isaiah, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? No, to the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. The Emmanuel that was prophesied in chapter 7 and verse 14 that we just looked at. In chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, what do we read about him there? Unto us a child is born, a son is given, and what will be his name? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Of the end of his government, there will be no end, and so on. The Lord will save a few Israelites who believe, the remnant, chapter 10, verse 20. And then take your Bibles and flip over to chapter 11. Chapter 11. We read in chapter 11, verse 1, Thou shalt come forth a rod. Chapter 11 verse 1, a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, his delights in the fear of the Lord. He judges rightly. And then verse 6, a wolf shall dwell with a lamb, the leopard shall dwell shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall grace. The young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. The weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then last, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In that day when the son Emmanuel, who is born of a virgin, who returns who is that wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting, who will rule and judge in righteousness and brings paradise on earth so that the lion eats straw and there's peace among all living beings. Chapter 12, verse one, "'In that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. "'Though you were angry with me, "'your angers turned away and you comfort me.'" Look at verse two, "'Behold, God is my salvation. "'I will trust and not be afraid.'" For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. This truth about Christ in chapter 7, verse 14, wasn't given during, wasn't given during happy times of tinsel and bright lights. It was given in a dark time. Moral decadence, child sacrifice, idolatry, And the complete rejection of the Lord. The bottom of your sheet, then, what must we hear from Isaiah and Isaiah 7? The Messiah's virgin birth was prophesied in a dark time of unbelief. It was prophesied in a dark time of unbelief to underline God's truthfulness. This sign was given to underline God's truthfulness. Pulling things together then for this message. What is unbelief characterized by? Think about what we've read. What is unbelief characterized by? Unbelief is characterized by doubt by fear it is characterized by not having any moral restraint I'm going to do what feels good to me that's what was going on with Ahaz, Ahaz and Judah it is characterized by ungodly worldly worship it is characterized by depending On the things of this world, in a time of crisis, look to Assyria, not to the Lord. It's characterized by not believing God's promises. A dark time. So what is belief characterized by? Belief is characterized by... A quiet rest. A humble trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is characterized by believing his truth. It is characterized by obedience. And all the other things that we looked at with unbelief. Not a life of moral decadence but a life of purity and holiness and righteousness. Not worship patterned after the world, but worship that obeys God. Not responding to hard times and crises by looking to myself or the world, but looking to the Lord, laying it out before him as Ahaz's son Hezekiah would later do. By trusting God, by believing His word. Borough Bible Church. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord.